This show is made possible by our Patreon supporters. To get access to our exclusive content and support the show, visit www.patreon.com forward slash EABB podcast. That's www.patreon.com forward slash EABB podcast. Thanks. Welcome to the Early American Brass Band Podcast. I'm Chris Troiano, joined always by Stephen Canistrisi. Hello. This is episode 41, season 3 of the Early American Brass Band Podcast, and today we are joined by John Connors. John Connors is currently a musician, reenactor, and historian. He plays trombone with the 122nd Army Band at the Ohio Army National Guard in Ohio. Uh, he's also playing in two early American brass bands, the 73rd Ohio Volunteer Infantry Regiment Band and the 2nd Cavalry Brigade Band. So we're very happy to have John on with us today. Yeah, it was great to talk to him about his experiences uh, in the reenacting field as well as the early American brass band field. So we're excited to roll on the tape with this interview and we hope you enjoy. John Connors for coming on the Early American Brass Band Podcast. How you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. It's good to talk to you guys. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on. We've been looking forward to this for a long time. <laughs> As have I. Yeah, definitely. Happy to have you. So maybe we can start a little bit at the beginning here. Can you give us a little bit of your musical background and kind of your your musical upbringing to how you got to where you are today? Sure. Well, I have a lot of thanks that I have to give to my parents because they were um, pretty heavily involved in, I guess, that genesis. My mom played (laughs) flute uh, through high school and I believe into college a little bit. And my dad had uh, kind of a patchwork of playing instruments throughout his school years and was more of a, like a diehard music appreciator, if I can use that term to kind of you know, evoke the best spirit of what that means. And um, so basically, like for as as long as I can remember, and I have evidence of this by looking at like old home movies, there was always like good music playing on the stereo in the background. And they had they had a good stereo system back when that was a thing, Um, (laughs) you know, and external speakers, you know, the big variety that have all the the high fidelity of sound and they had a really wide album collection and cd collection and so um some of my earliest musical memories are of the marine band playing Sousa marches or um like the glenn miller orchestra or the cleveland orchestra under cell playing uh the new world symphony which is one of my all-time favorite pieces and stuff so from a very very early age i was surrounded by good music and then when i was about three uh, it's when I started taking piano lessons. And so then I played piano up until basically it was time to start in the school band program. I always just had this feeling like I was destined to play in a band, probably because of the reason that I mentioned before with the, the music 
uh, mm-hmm. kind of environment that I, I had surrounding me as an early uh, child. And then, um, you know, the piano was just, I, I regret, and I'm sure lots of people say this, regret putting that, that down mm-hmm. for something else. You know, to this day, I wish I would have really stayed at the piano. But when it came time to pick a band instrument in fifth grade, I, uh, you know, I always knew that that was going to be what I did next. And the interesting thing is, um, my aunt, she kept the trumpet that my cousin had played in fifth grade. You know, it was one of those things you buy an instrument and then the kid stops playing it. What do you do with it? So when I was younger, I, I found this trumpet in her house and I kind of taught myself the, the C scale, you know, the trumpet C scale, nice. uh, just like by ear and trying different stuff out. But I've always subscribed to the thought that the, the instruments chooses the musician. So like it's piano, really Harry Potter issue. Yeah, you know, I know exactly. <laughs> like, you know, uh, all of Anders musical instrument factory yeah. kind of thing. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so I've already mentioned piano and alluded to how that didn't continue on. I've alluded to the trumpet. And then the other thing is like rudimental drumming. And we'll get into this later. I'm sure talking about like the historical background of how I got into reenacting or whatever. But um, I always thought that that rudimental drum with the rope tension system and the fancy colored hoops and stuff was just the coolest thing ever. Hmm. And so, again, my mom had a lot to do with this. She talked to a local music store and they were able to like retrofit a modern snare drum to have like red hoops and a guy put a rope through it. And, and we did a little, um, 4th of July parade where my mom made costumes and we did the spirit of 76 kind of thing. She played the fife and I hit beat the drum. This would have been probably before I like fourth grade timeframe. So Mm -hmm. right before that switchover, but then she bought me a method book for percussion. And it was just like, I remember being, yeah, like, mom, this is, I'm going to be a brass player. Like, I just <laughs> like, why did you give me this book? Don't you know this sort of thing? Like, I don't know what it was. <laughs> so percussion could have been that route, could have been the trumpet. But I get into that room uh, when you select the instrument. Mm-hmm. I played the C scale on the trumpet and everybody was like, whoa, we got a trumpet player here. And I was just like, yeah, but this is just not scratching that itch. So I <laughs> went over to the trombone. All I could do was just run the slide and stuff. But I was like, you know what, this is, I think, what I have to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so kind of fast forwarding all the way up, it's taken me to the professional or at least knocking on the professional doorstep of, you know, music playing. I play in some uh, big bands, some uh, other types of ensembles. And then, of course, the National Guard Band is a trombone player. So um you know, I did a, a bachelor's in trombone performance at Ohio University, which is uh, where my dad went to school. And I kind of always had that as a a place I knew I could see myself, but it didn't long story to end up getting there. But then I'm glad that I went there mm-hmm. um, and was I had so many great memories and a lot of great playing experience in the different ensembles there. Mm-hmm. And then I went to get a master's in trombone performance in Pittsburgh uh, at Duquesne University. I studied with Jim Nova, who's in the Pittsburgh Symphony. And then um, uh, most recently, I went to get a music education degree with my state teaching license uh, coming as a result of that uh, from mm-hmm. the University of Akron. 
-hmm. And so I played trombone all the way through all those years. And um, like I mentioned, I got into the National Guard uh, right out of high school. I auditioned for the the 122nd Army Band, which is the band here in Ohio affiliated Mm -hmm. with the Ohio National Guard. So I got Mm -hmm. into that in 2007 as a trombone player. And so it's just kind of like from from that point in fifth grade when I didn't really know what I was doing, but I kind of had some idea on trumpet. I was like, this is what I'm meant to play. And so I guess passion maybe is a theme, you know, Mm -hmm. you have to be true to what you're passionate about. And music was what I was passionate about, but not in the way that was going to lead me to want to make it my, you know, my job necessarily. So I find more satisfaction and, you know, of course, everyone's mileage will vary. I don't mean anyone to take kind of uh, negativity with what I'm saying, you know, mm-hmm. for the choices they make or the the way that they pursue their path in music. But I just personally find a lot of satisfaction with the occasional gig here and there where I get asked to come and play. It's a one-time thing and you you play and then it's, it's, it's a special moment. And I always liked the you know, when you're in music school and you have that concert you've been working for, for like three months in ensembles. And that's like a, a really special moment. Mm-hmm. And I, I enjoyed more of the, the things that make performing music special. Um, well, that's, that's in line with the majority of a lot of the people that would have been playing music in the bands in the 19th century, right? If you weren't in like a, a Sousa or Goldman or Gilmore, or you're in one of the smaller town bands, you know, you, you do other things, you know, music was, you know, a passion, you know, for these people to to go out and kind of be doing this thing. So yeah, uh, following in those footsteps, you know, a little bit. Yeah. And maybe that's part of it. I mean, going back kind of to my early days, uh, I mentioned that they, my parents had like Marine band recordings that they would play. <laughs> I had a really, fantastic opportunity um my dad had been corresponding with some of the people in washington dc that worked for the marine corps there Mm -hmm. uh, because my namesake uh john donald connors uh, uh, the original john donald connors was a um an uncle of my dad he was my grandfather's younger brother Mm -hmm. and in 1942 joined the united united states marine corps and went through the Pacific, through some different campaigns in the Pacific, and then ultimately um, was killed in action on Iwo Jima the day that the island was declared secure, which really crazy, like, I don't know if you call it serendipity or um, universal resonance, you know, like with the cosmos, but he was killed on March 14th of 1945, and I was born on March 14th, 1989. It was like 45 years later, yeah. to the day mm-hmm. that I was born. And so they named me after him. Um, and so in corresponding with members of the the Marine Barracks Washington, my dad got to be uh, like writing letters back and forth with the commandant and uh, Colonel Bourgeois, who was the Marine band director at the time. Mm-hmm. So I got invited, our whole family got invited to um Washington DC to be at one of those uh, Friday evening parades they have at the barracks there. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, he mentioned that his son, me was very much into music and I, I would conduct 
with, you know, a little stick that I found all these recordings. That was first how I internalized the music. Mm -hmm. Maybe even before I would play the piano, I, I just, I felt it and I would conduct along to it. And so I have it right here. It's, you might find it interesting. This is a photograph that was, and I, we can put it in the show notes. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's, that's me awesome. in a, in a uniform that my mom made for me. I was probably about four there. Uh, and this was taken by the, you know, the official photographer of the uh, Marine barracks, Washington, right after that twilight parade. And that's this awesome. is, uh, uh, Jack Lee, who was the president's own drum major for a long time. Mm -hmm. And this is uh, Michael Gardner. Uh, both of these gentlemen are still with us. Uh, he was the commandant's own drum and bugle corps drum major. And then this is uh, the late Colonel uh, Truman Crawford, who, from what I understand, was kind of like the the father of that commandant's own. Okay. I mean, he didn't start it, but he like made it the international performing uh, group that it is today. And so they they watched me conduct on the side and invited me over to get pictures with them and i got to hold their drum major mace and um no, so that know. was that was like a really big moment i got to see the the Sousa birth house and you know just treated like a little i don't know little <laughs> mascot for the day or whatever and yeah. those experiences early on kind of influenced you know the way i wanted to go with with band and i guess military music too that was something that I always thought I wanted to do. So it sounds like it, you had the very young uh, interest in the rudimental drumming that you were talking about, and then you had this Marine Band experience uh, graduating high school, you joined the Army National mm -hmm. Guard. So, like, are all these things all leading to the the eventual kind of official interest in history and music yeah. history, or or was that kind of being uh, was that kind of that seed there the whole time? I mean, I have to imagine a lot of it was there the whole time, and it just kind of took some special circumstances or events, chance meetings or whatever, to make it kind of all happen uh, for me. Like we would go to, as family for our vacations, we would take road trips and my dad was very much into history. And, mm -hmm. you know, part of that was his own family and learning about you know, somebody who was not able to make it home from one of the most significant historical events of recent memory being World yeah. War II, mm -hmm. wanting to learn more about that. He really fell in love with history. And so he fostered that in me particularly. So we'd go to civil war battlefields as well on, on trips and revolutionary war battlefields. Um, I don't know why particularly like the revolutionary war period was the period that was nearest and dearest to my heart for a long time. And hence that 1776, uh, the period, uh, painting by, uh, Willard, uh, who coincidentally is from Ohio, not too far. The town that he lived in was not too far from the town I grew up in. Um, but yeah, that was kind of there the whole time. Um, but, you know, I didn't know about the National Guard really until I was already in high school looking at what I wanted to do mm -hmm. with my life. And initially I was kind of being pushed and I was driven myself toward just going into the Marines as an officer, uh, not even really 
having music be a thing I wanted to do. It sort of was more of a last minute decision, which might allude more to the whole theme of like, I just want to play. Mm -hmm. I always knew I wanted to play in college. So instead of try to be a Marine, cause that, that kind of didn't end up working out, but why not go in as a music major? And so the timing of all these events, I think it's just, some of these things were meant to be. And so uh, it just happened that the band that I am in currently, the 122nd Army Band, was on tour. Uh, must have been the summer between my sophomore and junior year, I believe. And they, uh, I, I was in the community band there in Medina, which is my hometown, Medina, Ohio. Mm. Which, interestingly, you know, this is a subject for an entirely different episode, probably. But they go back to 1859 and have photographs of their earliest ensemble, the Medina Silver Cornet Band. So there is a, there is a, a long mm -hmm. uh, community banding tradition in Medina. And I grew up playing in that group too, as soon as I was, you know, old enough to play that level of music well. Mm -hmm. um, so that the, uh, the National Guard Band was on tour and we did a joint concert with them. My community band conductor conducted their band my former commander, once I got into that group, came and conducted the community band. And one of the soldiers was talking, ended up talking to my grandmother and my dad and stuff and saying, oh, he's, you know, we could use good trombone players like John. And at the time, you know, a being silly teenager, you don't think that what your parents are trying to push for you or recommending as an option is what you <laughs> want to do. But it just sort of, you know, I'll give it a try you know, a number of years later, that's something that I really try to do. And as a way to pay for college, yes, but I thought, well, this could be my entry into that military music scene. And so I, you know, I got into that group and all these years later, now I'm working for them full time. Um, so it ended up being, you know, a great decision. Did you kind of stumble into 19th century brass on your own and then find the bands that you're currently playing with then after the fact? Or did you meet the bands and then kind of get into that scene that way? Um, I kind of guess it's a little bit of both. Um, another, you know, gold star to my mother uh, when I was, I don't know, probably eight, nine, ten ish, the Wildcat Regiment Band did a performance at the Western Reserve Historical Society in Cleveland. And she took me to that and I was just, you know, blown away. And that was back when BJ Pino was, you know, doing the thing. And they were, they were a big band. They were great musicians. They were doing that stuff um, mm -hmm. as, as pretty much as good as anybody else was doing it at the time. And unfortunately I was just a little bit too young. I don't know if I had started in, school band yet playing the trombone or whatever but i didn't make those associations like what they're doing is accessible to me and i really applaud what you're doing the different missions of this this institution if i can call it an institution you know making this accessible to lots of different people so i i knew that there was this sort of thing this playing on old funny looking instruments and wearing 
Civil War uniforms. That's the part that I love was that they were all in uniform more than the music because I didn't really know too much Civil War music at the time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Again, I kind of was more into the Revolutionary War period early on. But yeah. uh, the historical brass thing first kind of for me, I think, came out of wanting to be a bugler. And the funny thing, so I was in Boy Scouts and my dad, uh, you know, was very big supporter of me being in the scouting program. He was a scout when he was younger. It's like, you should be your troops bugler. And he bought me a Boy Scout bugle. And I remember, you know, after this was probably only a year or two of playing trombone, uh, you know, couldn't really get much of a sound out of the bugle at all. And I'm just like, dad, this is just, I can't do this. I'm a trombone player. And, you know, the irony is that many years later, I was more or less a professional bugler. Um, <laughs> and I, you know, still love doing that, but uh, it's, it's, it's all here. If yeah. you can think you do it here, <laughs> yeah, you can exactly. make it happen. I, at that time, I did not think I could do it. But anyway, uh, fast forward to being in the National Guard band, the uh, National Guard is tasked with the responsibility of providing military funeral honors for veterans that are basically anywhere outside of the sphere of influence of an active duty military base. And even then, a lot of those active duty military bases just don't have the, the personnel to, uh, to cover a ton. You've got what they do in Arlington, and that is what we are trained to replicate. Essentially, we're, we use the same uh, doctrine that they use in Arlington that the old guard uses. Mm -hmm. So when I found out about the ability to serve, you know, when I wasn't playing in the band on the drill weekend, uh, that I could be a bugler for the funeral honors program and that they had a need for live buglers. Uh, I, I kind of went through that uh, audition process, if you will, or whatever interview process and really found a lot of personal, um, like a sense of duty being served or duty mm -hmm. being fulfilled. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as a brass player, I'll tell anybody that is another brass player, you know, there is a need and it's glad, I'm glad to see now after having gotten to know Yari, uh, Villanueva, that there's a lot of people out there who are doing the same thing. They're encouraging other people to do it. They're doing it themselves uh, to play taps specifically for funerals. So mm -hmm. I did that through the Army National Guard. And, you know, it was, it was probably right at the end of the time that I was doing my undergrad. And then I got into reenacting through a member of my National Guard band who had been reenacting her whole life. And she invited me to an event. I went to that and I was kind of hooked. Mm -hmm. You know, it was the what I thought was like the legitimacy of dressing up because I had always like, I showed you that picture of myself when I was a, a small child, my mom made uniforms for me. Mm -hmm. And so I liked dressing up the, you know, if you want to call it cosplay, if you want to just call it being a kid and, and dressing up, um, but I felt like the the reenacting thing was a more legitimate version of that, or at least it was a, it was a community mm -hmm. of other people who did the same thing. So I started doing that just as an infantryman, and I I have firearms and I enjoy being a, a shooter, but I was being a tutor to use the term that Mark Elrod likes to use, and, and other people have used over the history of 
bands in the military. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I wanted to be a bugler in the Civil War hobby because that's what I was doing in, in my day life. Yeah. And, and I kind of wanted to find out the history of what I was doing as a current army bugler. I was like, the more research I did about that, the more I found that there was a need for it in the hobby, you know, and if I can qualify like a legal document, civil war reenacting heretofore referred to as the hobby, you know, (laughs) when I call, when I say the hobby, I'm kind of just, you know, I'm a shameless user of lexicon sometimes. (laughs) And I know you're not supposed to use that sort of, stuff in in academic papers or whatever but you know no, i'll I'll use horn to refer to any instrument i'll use gig i'll yeah. use <laughs> kit that's another one for the the uniform and all the accoutrements this is my mm-hmm. kit if i just you know forgive me if you need me to clarify what i'm referring to no, just stop no. me no you're all good no. <laughs> yeah it, it's awesome it sounds like a exactly the same as what yari was saying with his involvement in civil war bugling and getting into that hobby uh, the interest of learning the history of what the actual, you know, active duty full-time job was and kind of pulling those two together. You know, it's a, an interesting way and very cool way of kind of approaching it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, listening. I remember to that section of the interview you did with Yari and it was one of several interviews you did with him, but I don't remember, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. when I was listening to that, I thought this is a very similar story to, the, you know, what I've experienced. So it's just really neat. You think you're paving your own way and no one else has shared your perspective or your life experiences. A lot of times, all you need to do is reach out and there's somebody who has experienced what you're going through and can help you or can guide you. And so I'm trying to remember, speaking of Yari, because that's another thing that, um, you know, my bandmaster in Ohio, the John Huffman, so I know you'd asked this a, a few moments ago about how I got into the the brass band thing. Yari being the uh, influential figure he is, I know he uh, was one of those guys that the bandmaster I have here in Ohio really looked up to. And that space was created largely by him and Mark Elrod and, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, then myself getting more connected with a lot of these other guys either through him, through uh, John Huffman or on my own. Mm-hmm. And uh, I feel very fortunate to call a lot of the guys that you've had on your show, uh, colleagues and friends and acquaintances and stuff. And it's just, it's been a wonderful uh, thing to have so far in my life. But uh, yeah, there was nothing in Ohio as far as brass band, early American brass band that I was aware of. Mm-hmm. And like I mentioned earlier, I saw the Wildcat Regiment Band. I knew of Federal City, but I had no idea if that was going to ever be part of my life just because, you know, in Ohio, there's a reenacting scene that's very localized. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure it's similar in a lot of states, too, where there aren't Civil War sites or sites associated with actual battles or whatever. Yeah. And a lot of that stuff happens out east, like where you guys are right now. I don't know if you're still in Fairfax, whatever, but where George Mason was is, excuse me, that whole area is very, uh, very much a hotbed of civil war history. Mm. And a lot more of those groups exist out in that area. So, you know, I just sort of thought that's a really cool thing, but that's never going to happen to me. And, um, John Huffman was my first sergeant 
when I joined the Army National Guard band. And after a few years of serving together, we you know, found out that we were on the same page as far as being interested in that sort of thing. And he was going to form one <laughs> because like he says, there isn't one for me to play in. So in order for me to have one at all, I'm going to have to start it myself. And he wanted mm -hmm. to just play in one for so many years. Mm -hmm. So he was able to find somebody who had a collection of instruments and he got in touch with Mark Elrod and got music. And so when he knew that most of the pieces were in place, to get this going, he mm -hmm. said, I don't have an alto horn player. Uh, and can you read B flat trumpet fingerings? And I said, well, yeah, but I, you know, I've never played an alto horn before. <laughs> he's like, oh, it's, and he's an old band director. So he was confident that he could get me to where I needed to be. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the, uh, that was 2011 ish. You know, we really started becoming a thing. The seven, this is the 73rd Ohio volunteer infantry regiment mm -hmm. band. Mm -hmm. became a thing in about 2012 with our, I think our first performance, we were playing modern instruments and we had white dress shirts and black slacks and stuff. But, um, you know, I had been reenacting kind of seriously for maybe two or three years at that point. And I was like, this, this is where I have arrived in my different disparate life interests. And, um, and so I've not really looked back since then. And then, that was kind of my my gateway drug, if you'll excuse the expression, into reenacting, though, as one of my primary sort of focuses with my spare time and my money and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. It was, okay, there's, there's the opportunity for this to become a big part of my life because we got, I mean, two or three years into it, we had... 10 performances a year. Then we'd have like 12 performances the next year. And it, it really started picking up to where I was mm -hmm. doing that 73rd band um, frequently. And we rehearsed twice a month. So mm -hmm. once I was devoting that much time to that, I was thinking, um, this is, this is really neat. And I did more research. And like I said, it was just sort of a rabbit hole that I went down and clearly there was that that passion there that I alluded to earlier mm -hmm. being a theme or whatever, you know, I was, my passion was mostly focused in that realm of sort of the civil war military musician as being, you know, the epitome of what I always had an interest in, what I studied a lot of, what I experienced today as a military musician and kind of what was the antecedent of that. Um, you know, collecting uniforms and instruments and other sort of things like that. Like it was just this perfect uh, concert of all those different things. go down here is when when you're uh you know reenacting and doing these these gigs you know either with the band or you know reenacting as an infantryman what what do you see as kind of like the not really the reason for reenacting but like what's what's the goal um you know when when you're you know going through all the all the steps and all the care to you know really you know make sure that the uniform is, is very accurate 
you know, kind of what's the goal? And I'm wondering kind of what authenticity is kind of a hot, you know, word. It Mm -hmm. can mean a lot of different things, but, you know, what's, um, I don't know, a good way to phrase the question. I'm sure there's a question wrapped up in my rambling there somewhere. That's um, okay. What's your experience with, with that kind of stuff? So I, you know, you're right. Authenticity is somewhat of a hot button subject. And I will maybe preface the the answer with my definition of it. And it's, it's not just my definition. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's what you will find in Merriam Webster or Oxford. You know, it is basically uh, something that attempts to replicate as close as possible or is replicating as close as possible to an original. So that sometimes people use the term authentic to mean original, and that's not what it means. If we talk about Civil War uh, reenacting, there's the original cast who obviously no, none of them are no longer, you know, they, are, they, have, <laughs> they have passed in the pages of history. So we aren't them. And I won't, you know, I want to make sure that nobody thinks I'm somebody who is thinking that they are a reincarnated Civil War soldier or has any other weird kind of things like that. I mean, my my passion is to bring to life as close as possible the the experiences of the Civil War soldier um, because that's what I have the personal connection to as a civil, as a musician in the army today. Uh, and that allows me to better convey the, those experiences to the public kind of in an educational standpoint. I know a lot of people say that civil war reenacting is for education. And, um, I came up through the mainstream side of that. And now I have crossed over into the authentic side of that and uh, without, you know, getting too into the weeds, there's people who just came up through that like I did and they put on what they were told to put on and they just go out and they, they follow the orders to, to portray the soldier. And, you know, that might be all the more that the involvement is with them. And, you know, that's totally fine. I'm not going to, diss that but then there's people who've made it their life uh passion avocation uh hobby what do you want to call it to to go down to the nitpick level because and i i kind of have the same thoughts it's this is a period that is important even to this day it probably will be important to the the story of the united states forever uh, mm-hmm. Even as more time passes, it's almost like it becomes more relevant, which is weird. But telling the story correctly is important. And, you know, you can't really start drawing lines without then maybe drawing it in the wrong place. So it's best to just, you know, make it fact based. And, you know, when you're dealing with a period where there's surviving originals, there's surviving period accounts, they're surviving photographs, they're surviving, there's basically a almost infinitesimally large amount of primary uh, resources that we can use to base our impressions on. Uh, And also with the internet, things being digitized, 
unlike ever before, the access to that information is unparalleled. So, um, you know, th there aren't, I personally don't feel like there's any reason to not get as um, close in my impression as possible. And knowing that it's never going to be perfect, that's part of the also, you know, the it's part of the allure, the draw is that it's just, it's a work in progress your whole life. And I also know that at some point I'm going to be too old to portray a soldier, but that doesn't mean that I can't in, engage with, um, whether it be the military, uh, the civil war, which was a military action, but there were mm -hmm. ancillary stories that are important to tell as well. The, you know, the story of the home front, the story of the enslaved and free black people, the story of civilians, men, women, the laborers, the immigrants. There's all these stories that the Civil War affected and changed how their arc was that, you know, there can be any number of access points for people to get into it. And so, you know, especially with musicians, you know, there were musicians of all ages during the Civil War period. So I, of course, will play an early American brass band instrument as long as I can. But for now, while I fit that, um, you know, that age where I'm physically of that, uh, average soldier and can stand the, the rigorous types of events, which are out marching around. I, I can relate to what I'm reading in those period accounts. And that's where mm -hmm. kind of the biggest, um, excitement is for me. So I'm doing research. I read about what these guys are talking about in their experience. I go to an event where it it replicates that as close as possible. And it, it's like, uh, you know, I won't, I won't, I'm not ashamed to admit that it may be a little bit of an escapism of sorts from the modern uh, lifestyle. I mean, I don't think I should have been born in another time, although a lot of my friends say I probably was meant to be. <laughs> but there are things I think that may be less healthy for our mental health that we just come to accept as normal with our modern lifestyle. And so, it's nice to unplug. And I think I would recommend that for anybody, regardless of what that, what that entails, go hike the Appalachian trail or take a, just a long drive or something. But for me, I like camping out with my friends, like-minded individuals. We portray, you know, many different scenarios, North, South, um, you know, combat soldiers, garrison soldiers. It's kind of a never, an endless, uh, wellspring of, inspiration for us to do these different events mm -hmm. and uh so getting to experience those things gives me a better perspective when i'm talking to the public without having to um i guess going back to like your your original question about what the point is i try to avoid talking about sort of the political uh situation because it's so so complicated and there's so many different factors um that it, it, it's an alienating subject in a lot of cases nowadays mm -hmm. and we don't want to turn people off um so we meaning other reenactors and stuff but we have an obligation to not lie to them either and i think uh that's something that as new research comes out people who are in the hobby who uh are you know content with just saying the old things that they've been saying for 20 or 30 years that may have been established fact back then. But since new research has come out, it is, 
is being discredited or whatever. It's important to to keep um, keep abreast of that sort of thing. And again, if you just go back to the primary sources, if you talk about what you know, it's you know good advice that I got from somebody not even related to civil war reenacting. It's just you know talk about what you know. What I know is my own experiences at these events, and that matches up with what I've read and what I've studied. Um, if you want to ask some other questions, you know, I'm, I'm not afraid to say I don't know the answer to that because my primary focus is like researching the musicians. So there's many other people who have researched other aspects and I'll either say, you know, talk to that guy or, you know, I, I, again, I'm not afraid to say I don't know the answer. And mm-hmm. that's just a kind of a personal philosophy that I think has gotten me far or at least it's gotten me to this point and i'm okay with where i am today so yeah have you noticed any sort of broad changes you know, in, in that reenacting field, has it gained popularity, lost popularity or, or anything like that? You know, even, even before COVID and all, all that, all, sure. everything that's happened yeah. in the past two years, you know? Well, uh, there are many things that are changing, unfortunately. I mean, it's, it used to be a hobby of numbers that mm-hmm. came a lot of the results of the Ken Burns documentary. Um, sorry. If we go kind of in a rapid fire order, there was, like in terms of mainstream popularity in the in the broader um you know american culture you had like the north and south and you had glory and you had the ken burns documentary and then you had gettysburg all within you know less than a 10-year window i would imagine and then gods and generals came along not that much after gettysburg um but the early 90s which if i'm correct i think that was like the 135th anniversary cycle was probably the height of uh, participation numbers wise. Well, you know, the guys who were doing it then, and that's 30 years now ago, they're in there probably, I mean, if you look at people who have time for reenacting, a lot of times it's the, the high school age students, people who don't have a job yet, and then people who are retired from their job. Mm-hmm. Everybody else does it as best they can. Um, so if you look at somebody who is maybe in their thirties or forties, who had some time to do reenacting, well, they're in their sixties or seventies now. And, uh, a lot of times it's just too hard for them to get out. Um, or the mainstream has suffered, unfortunately, from a lot of the same kind of, kind of what's, I don't, I hate to say scripted because to my perspective as an infantryman on the field, I don't know of a script, but it certainly seems like a lot of these events uh, are similar time in and time out. And so then it comes a question of, you know, are people wanting to pursue that anymore? Are they willing to, to look at other events to use their time with one that might be more engaging to them? So as someone who started on the mainstream side, I will agree that when people are suggesting that the hobby is dying, um, the mainstream side of it is certainly not getting bigger and it's probably getting a lot smaller. The other thing that's not helping are 
a lot of these more local mainstream type events aren't wanting to the the sponsors of those events traditionally are finding less enthusiasm from the the local community if you will and in some cases hostility uh for a number of reasons you know the battle flag being present at those events being probably one of the large ones and so you're finding less places that are willing to hold these events um but on more of the authentic side where one of the missions and i guess you did ask earlier and i i wasn't wasn't really thinking of this reason but uh, battlefield preservation is something that I'm really passionate about. And it's something that's highly espoused on the authentic side where registration fees, which they're kind of part and parcel with either authentic or mainstream reenacting the, the participation fees in most authentic cases go toward battlefield preservation. So it's, it's charitable. It's a fundraising type, uh, goal. And they hold these events a lot of times on the actual ground. So to be able to combine all the preparation work ahead of time with experiencing these events on the ground in which it actually happened is really exciting. And um, and I'm, I know you guys have performed on Manassas Battlefield before with the 8th Green Machine Regiment Band and perhaps other places. There's a certain energy around those places that you don't get elsewhere. And so... That's one of the enticing things about it. But um, so the changes about in the hobby are, are the numbers, where they are happening. It's shifting more to private events. So during COVID, I was fortunate to go to um, two or three events, I think, that were held on private land because there wasn't a need to contend with with those sorts of restrictions. Um, they ensured that there were you know, they weren't being irresponsible about it, but it wasn't like, you know, it was on private land. So mm -hmm. those things that would have held up or prevented a, a, a public mainstream event from happening were not in effect. The other thing is, is that some of these, some, not all, some of these authentic events are what are called events by us for us. And there's kind of a, a savvy acronym, E-B-U-F-U. All that means is, um, it's for experience of the people that are participating and it's not so much a public display. Mm -hmm. Um, civil war combat is extremely difficult to, to replicate. Obviously no one's being killed, no one's being wounded. So a lot of the events that I go to while I enjoy shooting my firearms, um, it's not what those events are about. It's more about the daily experiences of the 99% of life that they went through that wasn't the 1% of combat. So one of the philosophies is if you're going to replicate Civil War soldiers, you know, why not try to replicate instead of 100% of the time, 1% of their life? Why don't you try to replicate maybe, uh, you know, the 99% of their experiences that didn't involve combat? So there's so many other vignettes and scenarios that you can play out. So those those are things where it's you go out in the the march on original trails the ground that they actually marched over and you get to experience like what carrying a full load of the stuff that they carried in the shoes that are made the same way their shoes were made and it really puts that into perspective but um so yeah private events held on private land or events that are much more about 
a specific educational tidbit that you're trying to get over to the audience of a uh, a public interpretive event that's not a battle. You're actually showing them, okay, this is what a unit in camp would look like. This is what a unit on the drill field would look like doing these different evolutions from the manual. And people get a good appreciation of seeing what's really an exact reenactment rather than we're going to just get guys in two lines and shoot away at each other, which that doesn't go far enough is, is a lot of it. So those events uh, moving more to that kind of educational, strictly educational sphere rather than more of like a historical carnival um, is a big change that's coming more and more. Uh, I mean, it's been going on for a number of years, but it's much more common now. And then another change is you get less people coming from mainstream to authentic, making that change like what I did. And people are just coming straight into the authentic side. It's hard to kind of know for sure, because it's the other thing about Civil War reenacting, it's always been decentralized. I mean, there's no grand organization that sponsors all these events and does everything so it's you've got groups here you've got groups there they put on their own events they go to each other's events sometimes they'll go to a battlefield for a large anniversary type thing but knowing the numbers it's hard and you know i mentioned earlier the analytics thing i'm it's interesting to know that some of the people that i am associated with do keep track more of those sorts of things and post engagement and it seems like they're getting people into the hobby straight onto the authentic side and less people are saying, yeah, I, I did uh, mainstream for so many years and now I'm jumping over. So, mm-hmm. uh, or people that did authentic, uh, excuse me, people that did mainstream for a while got out of the hobby because whatever reason, and then they're coming back into it on the authentic side. So I, um, I don't have, expertise necessarily on the trends Mm -hmm. that might be factually happening just based on what i see though the the quality is improving and the quantity is definitely leveling out it's like i said it's nothing like what it used to be with the the numbers in the early 90s up to the the 150th was kind of like a a second high watermark but Mm -hmm. um things have stabilized on, at least on the authentic side. And uh, they're, I mean, COVID really, really did a, I don't know if there were any events that were going on on the main, that were sort of like the traditional mainstream type events Mm -hmm. because of the nature of bringing the public to them. They just couldn't have them. So it's going to be really interesting to see what happens uh, and to, to kind of circle it back around to the music side of things. I feel fortunate to be associated with a civil war musical ensemble um, because that can divorce itself from the event. You know, you don't have to have a civil war reenactment to have a civil war brass band be something that is a valuable addition to a festival or a parade or just a concert. And so I will have that as something that I can look forward to, Mm -hmm. you know, I hate to say in spite of what's happening sort of politically with the hobby, but I also have to be realistic that it just might become much more difficult to hold events. And um, 
you know, because it's such a big part of my life, I want to be able to engage in that how I can. And so the music yeah. is offering that it's, it's, I hate to say a novelty, but to the regular public, it does hold a, a draw that can be differentiated, or like I said, divorced mm -hmm. from the whole civil war reenactment thing. So, yeah. right. Yeah. That's what Chris and I have kind of been lightly talking about that exact, you know, aspect of when we're talking about the music and that these bands, you know, they did get such a, you know, big boost from the civil war because, because bands were popular at the time. Mm -hmm. And then during, during the, the war, you know, lots and lots of regiments had bands or town bands enlisted. Right. Know, and, and, you know, served periods of the war. But when you, when you look at it from the reenacting or, you know, recreating, you know, a, a, a version of that, that history, the band is something that you can like exactly what you're saying, you could separate from like a civil war reenactment event. And, you know, I, I could be wrong, but I don't think I am, you know, like a lot of this music was not strictly played only, you know, on a civil war battlefield or during those four years. Exactly. Um, you know, so if you wanted to have a historical interpretation visually, you know, you could do that as a town band, you could mm -hmm. do that in any number of ways um, that, you know, don't involve the imagery of the civil war, which I think, um, you know, is good for a number of reasons, uh, but, um, you know, like you're saying, it is a little bit more versatile. Yeah. And I'm wondering, you know, because you, you're, you're someone who plays in, you know, at least two regularly, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, uh, Civil War bands. Is that, is that kind of something that you see happening with those groups in particular or, or with groups in general? Do you see any of that thinking happening, uh, you know, kind of as we, as we look forward you know, public health wise to, sure. to get visually diversifying, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. Yeah. So that's a good question. And, um, for the 73rd, which was the first civil war band that I became involved with, um, I, our director still has, you know, goals for us to attain a level of, um, you know, personnel size, you know, to where he can have a good band at every performance, mm -hmm. you know, and it's just so hard with people and their busy lives to have everybody at all things. So growing the band, um, you know, getting more music and more original instruments and that sort of thing is one of his focuses. So, um, which I think is great and, and visually changing the appearance or whatever. I mean, we early on, said we're going to adopt the name of an actual civil war band from southern ohio that mm -hmm. had an extra an extraordinarily diverse service during the war so we said we're going to be that band so our visual representation is a little bit more stuck which i have no problem with that I, it's just not versatile and that's that's one way of doing things um but the second cavalry brigade band uh was by design with the name certainly was one that was not going to be limiting as far as a specific original band. And then therefore, um, one of the things that that group likes to do is be versatile in the way that professional musicians from the period, um, you know, maybe up until the mid 20th century, this practice really kind of died away, but professional musicians being multi-instrumentalists. And in my research, you know, I have 
I've seen images of army bands like out on the frontier, the Western forts, their band room. They've got all their horns hung up on one rack and then above them or below them, whatever, you've got a full string orchestra of instruments. Like there was not a separate ensemble at that facility. Those guys played both. In some of my accounts of the Civil War bands that I've read, same thing happened. The guys picked up other instruments and served as what they would call like a quadrille band or a quadrille orchestra. So our group, the, the second cavalry brigade band has enough people with talents outside of brass playing that we can, uh, give ourselves a chop break when we play balls and stuff and Mm -hmm. bring out the string instruments and that sort of thing. Um, so we are trying to be as versatile as we can because that group, uh, specifically, um, is one that's trying to kind of break upon a larger scene of performance that is not related to the Civil War at all, which would be like the the rodeo scene, the horse show scene, because we have that draw as well with all the horses. So mm-hmm. we want to have something that can be uh, enjoyable by a wide wide-ranging audience and so well they sometimes want to see the uniforms sometimes they want something else and so we're really trying to um get performances that will allow the band to uh you know expand its financial base for lack of a better way to say it so that these other things can be acquired uh because i mean anybody who's got one of these ensembles will tell you or you know they don't even need to tell you it's not cheap and the authenticity thing it's well i mean you could look at it as possibly being more expensive um depending on how you go about it 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 really does not have to be more expensive but certainly for the groups that are going to be playing the music on modern instruments that they already have versus playing them on period instruments there's going to be a significant expense with that Mm -hmm. so you know, we're trying with the, the cavalry band specifically, we're trying to get more instruments and uh, more animals, more tack. So it's just, it's one of these things that has to feed itself mm-hmm. in order to get to where we want it to be. But some of that feeding itself is we can serve as mounted buglers. We don't have to be the full mounted brass band. We can have three because some of the music that survives from that period was arranged for three bugles mm-hmm. in, in harmony. So with just three members, we can do a parade here. And in some cases, I think we've done multiple groupings of musicians in different parades on the same day. I think I could be wrong about that, but it might've been the same weekend. And so you had different people who could make one day, but then a different group of people make the other day of that weekend. Same on same organization then gets the the benefit of two performances. And then that, enhances what we can do with the full group. So, um, yeah, we have also talked about, and this would be yet another expense, but, um, becoming like a modern mounted military band. If you could kind of have the fantasy that the U S army maybe never got rid of their mounted cavalry and kind of like a ceremonial format, like what the old guard does, they have their their case on platoon, which might be, or there's uh, uh, the first cavalry division has like a mounted color guard and drill team out in, in uh, I think that's at Fort Riley in Kansas, but I could be wrong about that. 
they kind of dress up like the way the the cavalry dressed in the 1870s and 1880s. But what if the U.S. Army didn't get rid of their mounted musical ensembles in the 40s, basically when the the cavalry turned in their horses for the last time? Hmm. What might that look like today if it survived? So we've talked about getting some sort of, you know, military inspired uniform, but then we wouldn't be bound by any sort of authenticity standards we hold ourselves to now. Mm-hmm. Um, we could have modern instruments. We could, you know, there's, it opens the doors for a lot of different things too, especially where maybe that rodeo somewhere doesn't really want a civil war band. They just want a mounted band. Mm-hmm. And that would be a better uh, venue for that versus you know, Greenfield Village in, in Michigan has a Civil War days around Memorial Day. They specifically want the mounted Civil War band. So it just it's more flexibility. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I really like what, Chris, what you did on your recital with having the multiple uh, kind of options there on the stage all at once. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, you know, I don't know, maybe there's some situation where we would wear just all black modern attire or something like that. But we've definitely, uh, the sky's the limit. And I think one thing that keeps people intrigued and in, in coming back is the endless possibility of where you could take, take a group. So, um, in, in my, my specific case, I know it's maybe not a, a more widespread trend, but definitely in my specific case, that's where I see stuff going. And so mm-hmm. I hope that maybe other groups can find inspiration for that. And, or if not, you know, yeah. whatever, it's just, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's weird because it would be great if there were more, more ensembles like this, but mm-hmm. you know, to be con- competition, you know, we, with the rising, uh, rising tide lifts all boats. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that, that could just only benefit everyone. But, about yet is any instruments that you have do you you know with um you know doing all the reenacting obviously you have a lot of of kit there um but do you own you know period instruments and period mouthpieces and stuff that you use when you go out and do these gigs too yeah so i i was thinking about this earlier and i realized kind of where the genesis came from was before even i got really into the the reenacting thing it started with the trombone and it was the purchase of the horn that I wanted to use for jazz ensemble. You know, I had the, the standard large bore symphonic tenor trombone that everybody plays on when they're studying to be a classical trombone player, but I've always loved jazz and always loved playing in big band like through high school and stuff. So I needed the pea shooter, you know, to the small bore trombone to use for the uh, playing the higher parts. And so Um, my dad found some guy on eBay that was in our area and had a business where he was buying vintage con, excuse me, King HN white and, and King instruments and getting them kind of restored and then selling them. And so I tried out a bunch of this guy's instruments and the one that I fell in love with that I still have is a 1941 
serial number uh, H.N. White, which at the time, 1941, H.N. Whites were made in Cleveland, Ohio. So there was kind Mm -hmm. of that local connection uh, from where I am originally from. And this horn has a U.S. engraved on it, meaning that it was a military. Oh, cool. uh, Wow. It was purchased by the army for use by the army. Mm -hmm. And so it's, you know, World War II period. Who knows what it could have played for, you know, anything, but like I have that connection to it. So, you know, there's just something about, and you both know this from playing those old instruments, there's something about them, um, maybe more so with a, an 1860s vintage tenor compared to a euphonium than a, a 1940s small bore trombone compared to a 1990s or whatever small bore trombone. But it was like different enough that I was like, this is really cool. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, I, I kind of, the more I got into the, the civil war hobby and realizing, okay, there, there are original bugles that exist out there. I know what they look like. Unfortunately, some of the buglers that are out there serving in that role don't have the right kind of horn. Mm. So then that led me on, you know, the quest to try to find the best repro horn I could get. So I have the uh, Jan Berger bugle, Mm. and right now I don't have a pigtail for it. But so this is the closest thing that you can get nowadays that's a a repro. And then it works the best with an original mouthpiece. It just, it sounds spot on. The mouthpiece that it comes with is really, it should not be considered a mouthpiece in polite company. Um, (laughs) So I threw that away as soon as I could and got an original (laughs) mouthpiece. So I am very much of the original mouthpiece makes the horn sound the way it's supposed to. And again, you know, I'm not a professional symphony player or whatever who has to play on one setup all the time and doesn't really have the time to get around figuring out a new setup or whatever. So for me, I go in with the mental attitude of, okay, this is going to be different. Different is not bad. Mm-hmm. I'm going to just work around it. So uh, now I exclusively play on the original mouthpieces. Then I got another original trombone, uh, original to a period, old, mm-hmm. old trombone, Mm-hmm. This actually, I guess, would have been before I got the Civil War bugle, probably. It was um, when I was studying trombone, and this was one of those other syntheses of like history, reenacting uh, music, and it was the music of Arthur Pryor. And I've always, like I told you, the Sousa Marches played on the stereo as a, as a little kid. Mm-hmm. I kind of was, for a, a, a long time, still am a very avid Sousa historian, I guess you want to call it, or somebody who likes researching Sousa. And, you know, I've read all the books that he ever wrote and wrote, read all the books that Paul Byerly wrote about Sousa and this, that, and the other thing. So Arthur Pryor's solos, you, that's pretty standard repertoire for learning classical trombone. So Mm -hmm. like, okay, this is not easy to do as it is, but maybe it would be slightly easier to do it on the equipment that he had at his disposal back then. So, you know, I know uh, you had Steve Dillon on, mm-hmm. right? Wasn't he one of your guests? Yep. Steve Dillon has, and he might've mentioned it on that episode that he has Arthur Pryor's original or one of his original trombones. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that is essentially a custom built con trombone that then later was turned into a factory production model called the 2H. 
which is like a 450 bore in slide, which is tiny. It's like a trumpet bore. Um, And he had a mouthpiece, which Steve Dillon worked with Joe Alessi to do a recording project, which I highly recommend if you've not heard it before. It's called Slide Partners, Mm -hmm. 100 Years of American Trombone Virtuosity. Mm -hmm. The whole point of it was, what would Joe Alessi, a modern player, sound like playing Arthur Pryor music on Arthur Pryor's trombone? Mm -hmm. Because we only have this very kind of attenuated audio, aural, um, (laughs) recorded artifact of Pryor's actual playing. So, you know, it sounds great. And it's on a tiny horn. Well, they copied Pryor's mouthpiece as well, which is this mouthpiece right Mm -hmm. here. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I reached out to the mouthpiece manufacturer who he had copy Pryor's mouthpiece, a guy named Greg Black, who Mm -hmm. has a name for making, I'm sure, you know, you've heard of them before, yeah. uh, making trombone and trumpet mouthpieces and stuff for professionals. And so I, I just, he was very approachable. I emailed him or whatever and said, you don't happen to have like the specs of that mouthpiece. Do you? Oh yeah, I do. I measured it, you know, every, with my, my, my chromator calipers and that sort of thing. I measured every dimension because I had to copy that for mm-hmm. Joe Alessi. And I said, well, okay, I want that mouthpiece exactly. I don't want you to make it bigger for a modern, because mm-hmm. I believe the the Alessi mouthpiece has a wider cup diameter because oh, okay. he plays on like a size three, I think, or maybe bigger rim. Mm-hmm. So give me the original one. He's like, well, I mean, that's going to be basically you're buying a raw brass slag, you know, mm-hmm. about that long and that big around of brass. And that's not cheap i was like but i need this to go with the horn that i've got because i really want to achieve that characteristic sound so i had this con 2h trombone from i think the date on it's 1922 so it's mm-hmm. it's later than the prior period but it's the same specifications and mm-hmm. with this mouthpiece and i i just really loved that that sound and i had a few opportunities to solo on that type of music uh here and there over the years. Nice. So that was kind of maybe my first foray into uh, hip uh, mm. a- approach yeah. to music and mm-hmm. really, really liked that. And so, I mean, I guess with all the Civil War stuff that I've been doing so many years since then, I've kind of forgotten that that's maybe where some of my roots came from. But awesome. that that trombone was definitely one of my prized possessions for a long time and bugling because like there wasn't a brass band in Ohio for a while. Mm-hmm. And then when there was, I was not having to have my own instrument because the band supplied it. I focused on getting bugles. So I have okay. a pretty good bugle collection that goes um, mostly from the 1840s. I have an 18, probably circa 1840s keyed bugle, B flat keyed bugle. And then I have an original uh, field trumpet in G which is what I primarily use for cavalry bugling because it's mm-hmm. the lower mm-hmm. overtone series and a lot of photos of cavalry mounted buglers. They're using a trumpet that's either E flat F or G rather than the B flat bugle. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I have uh, an 1892 field trumpet from the Spanish American war period. That is hopefully going to, I can get that restored at some point. Nice. Um, and I have one from, approximately the world war ii period which is an actual u.s issued 
con bugle, not one of those civilian available U.S. regulation yeah, yeah. Rexcraft bugles that are not that great. And then I have a plastic bugle from World War II. Um, I have a United States Quartermaster Department stamped Horstman. And then you probably know the name Horstman, the manufacturer and retailer of military goods. They were in Philadelphia. This is dated 1916. So this is the what they call the trench bugle, mm -hmm. even though these weren't used as much during World War II, or excuse me, World War I. Um, but that B-flat bugles, the model 1894. Mm -hmm. And then I have a modern, the bugle that I would play when I did funerals is a, an 1892 style custom built bugle that a guy built out of all box Stradivarius trumpet parts. Mm -hmm. but it was not, it was not a box Strad bugle that Bach made like he did for the army band. This was put together and it's like a B flat signal trumpet, but it's made on all the parts are box Strad trumpet parts. So it's mm -hmm. really nice horn. We've pretty much covered all the instruments that I had, in, except for this, which is my most recent uh, acquisition, the B-flat over-the-shoulder sax horn. I bought this one from Jeff Stockham, primarily because uh, experimental research would suggest that cavalry bands preferred over-the-shoulder instruments because they're easier to play on horseback. Yeah. There's nothing written down that says, yes, that is why they, you know, chose them, nor is it always possible to identify specifically cavalry bands, or there's a lot of images of cavalry bands where they're on foot, mm. you know, but it's ones that are identified. They're all using over the shoulder instruments. And it just seems clear that, you know, when you're riding a horse with one hand that it's easier to do an over-the-shoulder configurations that that yeah. that might have been something that they either explicitly uh for that reason or it was just sort of uh common knowledge back then they they went for the over-the-shoulder type instruments mm -hmm. for that reason mm -hmm. so yeah, um it's interesting nice yeah tri trial by error kind of thing exactly <laughs> and then yeah. later bands they use the helicon type instruments mm -hmm. yeah so and I Same like World War One bands. Yeah, even bands yeah, kind of thing, right? exactly. So you know, those are a different thing, but still easy to play on horseback. Well, John, this has been a great conversation, and we really thank you. Uh, for giving us some of your time here and sharing all your insight and experience, uh, you know, of which you have a lot in this regard. So really thanks for coming on. Where can people go to find out more about you or any of the groups that, uh, you know, you mentioned today that you're involved in and all that good stuff? Uh, so the 73rd Ohio Volunteer Infantry Regiment Band has a website uh, and I can give that to uh, you guys to put up on the the show notes, it's uh, without having it in front of me. I don't know if I would do service trying to quote it, but 73rd OVI Regiment Band dot Weebly dot com. Yeah, that's it. You get and it. Then, thanks. <laughs> Ooh, uh, I do some maintenance of the Facebook page. So that would be another place you could find on 73rd OVI. You know, you can find that. Um, all the primary research that's on the Facebook page is stuff that I've put up there from things that I've been able to get access to. So that's maybe a little plug 
is I was trying to tie the modern band back to the original band that we replicate. So there's some of those archives or artifacts on the Facebook Mm -hmm. page. The second cavalry regiment band, excuse me, second cavalry brigade band is also on Facebook and Instagram. Um, I can't remember if we have a website, but, um, I didn't pull that one up. Yeah. I can't remember. If it does, we'll include it in the show notes. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I'm sorry, Bill and Katie. I'm not doing us a very good job of, plugging the group but uh definitely the set, on social media yeah we're both on social media i am on social media um i'm trying to think i mean there's really i i don't really exist as a as a maybe a person that anyone would really want to go out of their way to find at least i don't think um <laughs> i don't have my own website well if people have questions about either the reenacting hobby uh like if they're interested in getting into it or if people have questions about their kits or instruments or anything, what could maybe be a way that people could reach out to you if they have any questions and want to talk to you maybe a little bit more in depth about uh, that side of things? Yeah, I'm, I am. One of the things I love doing is working and, and sharing ideas and stuff with people, especially those that are looking to get a little bit more involved or learn more. And I certainly learn stuff from other people. Um, you know, find me on Facebook, uh, John, J-O-H-N, Connors, C-O-N-N-O-R-S. You can, I'm pretty sure you can send me a message regardless of whether we're friends or not. If you don't have uh, Facebook, um, I guess you could send me an email. My personal email address is John, J-O-H-N, dot Donald, D-O-N-A-L-D, dot Connors, C-O-N-N-O-R-S, at gmail.com. And, um, I guess that's pretty much it. I hope that I, I mean, I'm sure I know many of the people who are listening to this and, you know, look forward to seeing all of you again at some point in the future, Remembrance Day or something or Battle of the Bands. Um, And if I haven't met you yet, I, you know, hope to make your acquaintance. I like meeting new people, especially with the shared interest that I would presume this podcast is bringing us together for. Um, So, yeah, that's a good point. I guess instantly, if anybody knows to click on this podcast or is already listening, that's pretty much a guaranteed uh, shared common interest right there, right? Yeah. (laughs) Oh, thank you so much, John, for coming on. I really appreciate you guys, what you're doing and, you know, thinking that I'm worthy of having a small part to add to that and, you know, thank you for giving that opportunity. Thank you again so much to John Connors for coming on the Early American Brass Band Podcast. This episode's featured album is by the 73rd Ohio Volunteer Infantry Regiment Band, uh, attached in our show notes and on YouTube. If you're watching on YouTube, we will include a link to their website where you can purchase their album, which is kind of an LP release uh, showcasing the band and a number of the selections that they have in their repertoire. Uh, all played on period instruments and some very high quality playing so we will include a link to their album Uh, it's also linked on our discography page on our website so you can check it out there as well be sure to follow the show on all social media platforms to stay up to date and we also have a patreon page and a teespring store if you'd like to support the show financially Music for this episode was provided by the 8th Green Machine Regiment Band from George Mason University and was made possible by our supporters on Patreon. 
Thanks for listening and we'll catch you on the next one.